Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. But before I get into James chapter 2, where I want to go this week, I want to look at, um, I want to look at the audience with you. Who is James preaching to? He's preaching not to non-Christians, but to Christians. In fact, these are Jewish Christians. These are people who grew up waiting for the Son of God to come, waiting for the Anointed One to come, and He finally comes. And now that He's come, now that they believe in Him, what do they need to do? See, these are very religious people. These are people that went to synagogue every week. They knew the Bible. They recited that, that there's only one God. I mean, that, they, their belief system, there was nothing wrong with that. But what James is confronting is this mindset that seemed to be slipping over the church, that I'm okay as long as I believe the right things. I'm saved so long as I believe that Jesus loves me and comes into my life and gives me new life. James confronts that mindset and says, that's a good start, but that's just the start. There's much more that God desires for you, amen? So let's look at this, James chapter two. We'll start reading in verse 14, and it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? Let me just stop there. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? You know what James is doing? He's doing this old trick that teachers know and other people know. Whenever you have to deliver bad news, you slice it, you you, you sandwich it between good things. It's called the Oreo method. As a teacher, I had to do this all the time. If a kid was failing my class, I would have to start off with something good. I'd say, you know what? You've got great eyebrows. You're failing my class, you're doing horrible, you're not doing your homework, but your eyebrows are immaculate. So I had to do that all the time. And James is doing that. James is saying, hey, you guys are my brothers, you're my sisters, you're with me, we're in the family of God. What a beautiful start, right? But you know there's a dagger coming, you know there's some pain coming to the church. He says, what good is it, dear brothers, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Say it's not enough. Faith by itself is not enough. I hope you have faith. I know you came here today because there's faith in you. Even if you think, I don't have any faith, the Bible says, I've given to every single person a measure of faith. You have faith, but it's not enough. It's a start, but it's not enough. It produces, unless it produces, good deeds. It is dead and useless. Say useless. This is a word we're going to come back to a few times. Next verse. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can, you show me your, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. See what James is saying? He's saying, yeah, it's great to have faith, but faith by itself is not it. You've got to have some good deeds mixed in. They're connected. They go together. Next verse. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. This is the dagger, the Oreo method. This is where he's delivering some bad news. That's great that you believe, but even the demons believe that. He's saying your faith may not even be as great as a demon's faith. That's rough. 
That's rough. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Now he's using some even tougher language towards them. Some translation says, you fools. Not you guys. No fools in this place. Amen? Uh, can't you see? Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? There's that word again. Next verse. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? See? I thought all I had to do was believe in my heart that Jesus loves me and I was good for he- forever. I was going to heaven. By his actions. When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see, his faith and his actions worked together. Say together. Yeah. There you go. His actions made his faith complete. Let's keep going. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of the faith. He was even called the friend of God. What an amazing thing. Isn't that amazing? I you can take everything away, but if it says on my tombstone, here was a man who was a friend of God. My goodness. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Keep going. And now look at Here's a second example. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions. By her what? By her actions. When she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Faith and works go together. Amen? Let's pray one more time. God, we just thank you that we are under your word, in your presence. And I pray you are speaking to us and changing us. We pray, God, against any distractions. Help us to focus in right now on what you would have us to learn and where you would have us to grow. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen. You know, uh, one of the things that I get to do here at the church is uh, we have a school, Awakening Leadership Center next door. It has just the best of the best young people coming from all over the country. And uh, they come because they want to give God their best. They want to tr- be trained so they can be a leader in the church. And one of the classes that I get to teach there is church history. And in church history, every one of my students leaves that class knowing this one man. There's several people they're going to learn. But Martin Luther is someone all of my students would know very well. Now, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. You've heard of him. I'm talking about the original Martin Luther. This, is, this Martin Luther lived 500 years ago. Martin Luther was someone that when he, be, when he was a young man, he wanted to become a respected man. He wanted to become successful. So he wanted to become a lawyer. One day, while he was walking through a field, a rainstorm hit, thunder, lightning. It was an awful storm, absolutely terrifying in the truest sense of the word. It was so bad, lightning zapping all over the place. He cries out like a good Catholic. He cries out, St. Anne, save me. Save me and I will become a monk. It was this cry from his heart because he was so terrified of dying. That day, he survives the lightning and thunderstorm. And as a result, he honors his pledge to God. Martin Luther becomes a monk. Well, you'd say, so he's saved. This guy's saved. Not so fast. Martin Luther, while he was at the monastery, would work every single day trying to prove himself to God. 
trying to show God that I am worthy and I'm good enough. And see, look, I'm, I'm denying everything. I'm not a lawyer anymore. Now I'm a monk. Then he would put more things. This is what we call works-based. He was trying to do it by his own works. Sometimes he felt like God was distant, so if he would do things, God would come closer. He started fasting, and he would give up meals, three meals, three days of meals, six days of meals. He would fast for long periods of time. He would sleep, but uh, he would sleep on the floor in a, you know, in a stone room, no mattress, no blanket, no pillow. He would purposefully harm himself and punish himself so that he could try to please God. It's kind of crazy. And he looked so unhappy with it. Even monks would come up to him and say, hey, Martin, you look so unhappy. Don't you love God? And Martin Luther turned to them and said, love God? I hate him. I hate him because I never feel him. I never feel like he cares for me. I never feel like I know him. And Martin Luther would continue, even in this bitterness, just doing, you know, reading and praying, but not having a relationship with God. It's absolutely amazing and mind-boggling. And then one day, he was reading through his Bible, which was his practice every day, and he, um, he was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and then a verse jumps off of the pages at him, and the very, for the very first time, the, the, the Bible became real to him. And it said in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just or the righteous shall live by faith, by faith. And he suddenly realized he had it backwards. He had always been trying to work himself and show himself and prove himself to God as someone worthy of salvation, worthy of heaven. When God was saying right there plainly in the scriptures, that's not the first step towards God. The first step towards God is what? Faith believing that you are sinful, that you are hopeless, that you need someone else to do the work for you. And that's when Martin Luther was awakened and had his experience, his salvation experience. From that moment on, Martin Luther was never the same. From that moment on, Martin Luther was doing works and he was doing good deeds, but it was out of a place of wholeness where he knew why he was doing it. He wasn't doing it to please God, but because God was pleased to use him to do these works. Do you see the difference? Do you see it? See, this morning we're going to talk about faith and works. But first I want to talk about faith because I'm not knocking faith at all. We need it. We've read, read it several times uh, this morning. And, and Martin Luther came to salvation because of his faith. And the Bible talks a lot about it. It says in the Bible that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to have faith. And even if you come in this morning and feel like I don't have any faith, God has said, I've given you a measure of faith. You have faith. The Bible says that there are three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Faith is one of the crowning things that a Christian should wear, faith, hope, and love. The Bible talks so much about it. Even Hebrews 11 it has a whole chapter of the Bible talking about the great faith that men and women of the Bible have shown. It's called the Hall of Faith, or the whole, it's kind of like a Hall of Fame. Even as a church, it's one of our values as a church, right? Expectation is our approach. We come to church expecting that God is going to move. We come to the altar asking for prayer, believing that he hears our prayer and he's going to work and operate in our lives. So we come with expectancy. We come with faith. Faith is necessary, but it's a first step. Faith is what gets you through the door, amen? 
It's what gets you through the door. And faith is what makes you stronger. See, some of you, faith is what helps you to, you know, take that first leap, leap of faith and become a Christian. But as you grow, you've got to grow in your faith as well, right? There are times that difficult times are going to come. A family member gets sick. Your finances come under, under trouble. And in those times, you start to trust God and believe God and have faith. Faith for your finances, faith for your family, faith for your future. You are always going to be growing and maturing in faith. Isn't that true? But then James here warns and he says, listen, you need faith, but it doesn't stop with faith. And he goes on to warn that there are three types of faith. The first two faiths are dead ends. The first two faiths are going to leave you hopeless and leave you empty. And I want to quickly cover those two, and I really want to spend more time on the third type of faith. The first type of faith that Paul, excuse me, that James is going to lead us to is what he calls dead faith. Dead faith. Dead faith is useless. Say useless. Say it again. Useless. Dead faith is useless because it's not doing anything. When God comes into you and he starts to work in you, good things are supposed to come out of us. Amen. They come out of us. Sometimes you can't even help it. You just start doing new things and you have new desires. It's because that's the way that you are designed as a Christian. Let me give you this as an example. My, um, one of my kids loves apples, just loves them. He's eating apples all the time. He'll eat six, seven, eight apples a day easily. You think I'm exaggerating. I should have named him Johnny Appleseed. This kid goes through so many apples. I'll buy four bags of apples a week. They're gone. They're gone before the end of the week. Every time I turn around, he's snacking on an apple. <laughs> so my wife and I said, you know, we've got um, to save some money on this. And we, we, we're going to get ahead of this. So we're going to plant apple trees in the backyard. This is part of my financial plan to secure my family's future <laughs> for generations. Feed my family off of apples. So we bought a couple of apple trees a couple weeks ago, put them in the ground. Those apple trees are designed to produce what? Apples. If they don't produce apples, they are useless or dead. Ah, oh, you guys are getting this. All right. Even if they're not dead, they're still useless. I'm expecting those apple trees to produce fruit because they're designed to do that. I'm nurturing them. I'm caring for them. And I know someday those apples are going to grow. Flowers are going to blossom. Bees are going to pollinate them. And apples are going to come. Amen. But that, that's not where it stops. The, the tree doesn't just produce apples and the apples just stay there. They're designed to be consumed. You are designed to produce fruit. You are designed to produce good works and good deeds for other people to come over and grab from your apples, be nourished by your apples, be rejuvenated or refreshed by what you do. You are designed to do that. Pastor Dave called me an apple tree at church today. You know what it is? When you have a, a, an experience with God, when you've been awakened to who Jesus is, you are not the same person. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes everything. Am I speaking the truth? This happened to me. I, I would say this. If your faith does not change anything, it's not true faith. He hasn't, he, he, he hasn't been able to come in. Let me give you an example. My, uh, my wife and I have been married for, uh, ooh, I shouldn't have done math when I'm up here, uh, 18 years. 18, yeah, that sounds right. 18 years. I, always, I never learned my lesson. I always do this on the fly. 18 years. And um, 
When, bef- let me give you an idea who I was before I got married. Before I was married, my idea of furniture was milk crates. That was totally okay with me. I'm not kidding, my bed was held up by milk crates. That worked for me. I had milk crates for bookshelves. I don't know why you're knocking them. Bookshelves are great. I mean, milk crates, you can move them around, they're stackable, they're designable. I mean, they, they're great. Before I got married, I had one pillow. After I got married, the milk crates had to go. My one pillow got replaced, it multiplied. It's like tribbles, if you remember Star Trek. Tribbles, these pillows started multiplying around my, my, my house, my, our apartment as we, my wife said we, you know, one pillow? No, you, we had nine pillows on my bed. Nine pillows. And they're not for, you know, God forbid you lay down on the nine pillows. You lay down on one pillow, the other eight are for decoration. You don't touch those pillows. What did my wife do? When I married my wife, she came into my life and she civilized me, right? She, I grew up, I was no longer a boy. She taught me that there are multiple pillows and there are decorations and that yeah, you have mini blinds, but you have to put curtains over them and milk crates are not furniture, they belong in the garage. So I still have no milk crates, but they're in the garage. So. What am I saying? When Jesus comes into your life, he's going to change your life. He starts getting into your business, into your furniture, into your way of thinking, into your habits. The wives are hitting their husbands, see? New curtains, new curtains coming. What what am I saying? God is not looking just for a mental assent, like yes, I believe you are the son of God. So you can have all the right theology and be totally wrong, totally be living backwards. It's not, you you don't live like it's Jesus over here and then I live over here. Can you imagine if that's how we lived as spouses? Like you have your wing of the house, I have my wing of the house. No, we live in the same house, we live together. My wife blends and she rubs off on me. When Jesus is living with you, he changes you, changes you. There's um, a second type of, oh, before I get to that, I was just thinking back in, uh, in James 2, it talks about when you don't, if you believe that you don't need to have works, you just need faith, James calls that foolish. Foolish. He says, fool, and the word foolish there means empty. It's like your, your faith is an empty faith when it's not filled with good works and good deeds and good actions. What God is talking about is having active faith. Just like the husband who thinks that he can get married and his wife's not going to affect him. No, I'm not going to get rid of my milk crates. No, you're going to be changed. You will surrender to this process of marriage. She is going to rub off on you. My goodness. Amen? Amen? Husband said amen? Wife said amen. Wives? Amen. Second type of faith, number two, is what is a demonic faith. This is where James gets a little extreme. He's getting very spiritual. Some of you don't even like to hear the word demonic. We don't like that word. It makes us unsettled. James uses that word to describe the faith that they were showing. He says the demons have a faith in God. In other words, they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. May I say, 
demons probably even have a better sense of theology than I do and than us, than most of us in this room. They know without a shadow of a doubt who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing. But that knowledge is not what saves them. He says that even these demons, when they, when they understand who Jesus is and they know or they're around him, they shudder and they're terrified. You see that as an example in Mark chapter 1. There's a man who was in a synagogue when Jesus was preaching, and this man had a demon on him or a demon in him. And while Jesus was preaching and speaking with authority, the man was terrified and actually said, why do you, st- Jesus, why do you keep tormenting us? Why don't you leave us alone? And Jesus in that moment cast that spirit out. The Bible says, though, that that demon had to obey Jesus, recognize Jesus' authority, but the whole time it was shuddering in terror and fear. And I would say, how many of us, when we respond to God, respond to Jesus, are we responsive? James says, even a demon, a wicked demon in rebellion and in a fallen state will shudder and terrify in the presence of God. This is what I, I sometimes think of as, you know, there are, there are people who are theologically Christians. They know what it means to be a Christian. They say all the right things. They even memorize scriptures and maybe even go to church. But functionally, they're atheists. They live like an atheist. They act like there is no God. And what James says is, you cannot have that kind of faith because that is demonic. It's a state of rebellion. It's a surrender to God. Then the third type of faith, this is the one that I want to spend more time on today, is what we call a doing faith, a doing faith. This is when your faith and your profession of Christ is not just something that's up here in your head, and it's not just something here in your heart, but it's here in your hands. It's, you're starting to live it out. You're starting to act it out. This is the kind of faith that God wants us to have. It's one thing to say, I'm all in God, I'm all in Jesus. But then we're not, you know, we're, we're a little nervous about it. Let me give you an example. My kids and I, we, we set up a pool a few weeks ago, filled the pool, and now the kids are constantly in the pool. When I grew up, there was like three, three kind of ways you jump into a pool. There was uh, the dive, right? There's the belly flop, and there's the cannonball, right? Uh, my kids invented dozens of new ways of jumping in the pool. There's the tornado, they're spinning while they jump in the pool. There's the Jesus jump where they just they make the cross and they go in. There's the prayer jump. There's even the walking on water. Like they just, they made all these. And then they came to me and said, Daddy, we have a new one, the Hulk smash. I was like, Hulk smash? Whoa, I'm getting adventures here. What's going on? And they, they said, that's when you pick us up over your head and you throw us in the pool. I'm like, that sounds dangerous. They're like, yeah, we know. So they want to, they're lined up, they're cheering, like, you know, Hulk smash. They can't wait for daddy to throw them in the pool. Now, they're lining up, but then it starts to, it comes to them what this entails. Daddy picking them up seven feet in the air and throwing them into a pool. And one by one, they start getting nervous. Oh, I don't know, Daddy. Uh, take Ben, the six-year-old first, you know? <laughs> they start throwing each other into the fire, you know, towards Daddy. What happened there? It was easy for them to profess it. This is a great idea. I can't wait. I'm so excited. But when it came time to step in line, to step on the ladder, to let Daddy actually pick them up and release them and throw them, they got fearful. There are things, there are times that God wants to release you, but you get fearful and you, you don't want to. You're nervous, you're apprehensive. 
for my kids. I think they thought I was going to overshoot the pool and throw them like on the other side of the lawn. But I, I believe that, that the kind of faith that God wants us to have is the kind of faith that is all in. But it's also here I am. Pick me up, God. Take me to where you want me to be. What, is it, what business, what work, what act, what deed, what words do you want me to do and be a part of on this day? That's a doing type of faith. And I think there are two great examples that James illustrates this principle with. The first one, the two great examples, there we go, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is an amazing, raise your hand, be honest. You, raise your hand if you know Abraham. You've heard of this man. Not Abraham Lincoln, the other one, the first one, Abraham, good. Rahab, be honest, you're in church. Rahab, ah, not as many hands go up, a few. Some of you went to Bible school or children's church, that's good. So Abraham and Rahab, Abraham and Rahab, these are two people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. One's a man, one's a woman. That's just the beginning of the differences. Abraham is wealthy. Rahab is a prostitute, poor. Abraham is a nobleman, well-respected, a leader, has people under his, under his leadership. God's going to make a nation out of him. Abraham is exceedingly important. There are chapters of the Bible devoted to Abraham. Rahab is someone who is on the lower end of the status ladder. She's as a prostitute. She's poor. She doesn't have a lot of leadership. She's, you know, uh, she's not a great leader. She doesn't have a lot of people following her. There aren't chapters of the Bible. There are portions of the, of the Bible that you can read about her life. Abraham and Rahab. Both of these people had faith. Both of them will have to act it out. For Abraham, Abraham had to show his faith. God came to him and very clearly said, I want you to sacrifice your son to me sacrifice his son to him. Abraham obeyed God. The Bible says that he grabbed his son the next morning, not grabbed, led his son, uh, led his son the next morning, three days on a journey to Mount Moriah. Went up to the mountain, prepared the sacrifice, pulled the wood together, and was getting ready to sacrifice his son just as God commanded him to do it. And at the last moment, God stopped him and said, Abraham, stop. I'll provide the sacrifice. You've already shown, demonstrated your faith in this action. What Abraham demonstrated was an act of obedience, an act of obedience. Rahab's a little different. Rahab didn't have God appear to her suddenly. There's no angel in the story where she's getting commanded and led to do something, some mighty powerful thing. Instead, she's a prostitute inside a city that's about to be attacked by God's people. Joshua's leading an army. But while she's in there, these two messengers, the Bible calls it, in other places, they're called spies. These spies come into the city and they're hiding out and they're about to be captured. They hide with Rahab. Rahab hides them. And Rahab hides them because she heard of who they are. And more importantly, she heard of the God who they serve that God is powerful, that he's mighty, and that he's defeated the Egyptians and so many other people. And at that point, she says, I'm going to hide you, and I ask that you protect me and protect my life. And in that moment, Rahab demonstrates an act of opportunity. 
Do you see the difference? For Abraham, for Abraham, he had an act of obedience. God told him, you need to give this thing up. You need to sacrifice your son to me. Abraham acted in obedience. For Rahab, there was no clear order, no command, no angel, no vision. It was just an opportunity presented itself where these two men were in trouble. They were God's men on God's business on a mission from God to borrow the Blues Brothers. And, and, and God had to protect these men. And God uses Rahab to do it. And in that moment, she does it. And forever, her life has changed in the same way that for Abraham, his life would be changed. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I don't know where you're at in your life right now. I, I do believe this, that for every one of you, every single one of us, we fit in this spectrum. Maybe you're not Abraham, a huge, a righteous man, a pillar of the faith, a, a giant spiritually, a wealthy and powerful and influential. And maybe you're not all the way over here. A woman who's a prostitute and immoral, has no future, living in brokenness, no big, you know, great stories about what she does except for this. But you're somewhere in between. And I think that's where we all are. And for every one of us, God is saying, you have faith. You believe, but now I want you to put some action behind it. Now I want your faith to be activated and engaged. And for, for you, maybe there's an, an act of obedience that God has been working you on and he's been speaking to you and saying, I need you to give this up. This is harmful to you. This is hurtful to you. This is harming your family or your mind. It's an addiction, whatever it is. God is saying, give that thing up. See, Rahab, she was a prostitute, but even a prostitute, can make a right decision and do the right thing. No matter how, what you've done or how bad you may think you are, God is saying there's a chance for you to do the right thing today. That's an active opportunity. The beautiful thing about this story, and I, I love how James includes this, is that for each of these two individuals, once they make that, that decision, those, those acts of obedience and acts of opportunity, they do the right thing. God blesses them. His blessing comes on them. For, for Abraham, it's not just that he's going to have his son. It's not just that his family is going to be blessed and he's going to have a great nation. It's not just that he's going to be the father of Judaism and Christianity. It's that what James says, that Abraham was called a friend of God. What a, who else would you want to be friends with than a friend of God? And then for Rahab. Rahab, if you read the Bible carefully and closely, you'll see that Rahab, after this, her life becomes blessed. She comes into the blessing of God. The Bible says that she leaves prostitution. She marries a man named Salmon. And the two of them create a new family. She leaves all the brokenness. She leaves the immorality. She comes under the family of God. She marries a man named Salmon, and together they have family and children. And if you read the Bible, four generations into her family lineage, from her family comes David. David. King David. David the David who slayed Goliath. All from an act of opportunity when she said, God, I'll do the right thing. I could be killed. She could have been killed. 
could have been treated like a traitor if she was caught. She would have been executed immediately, but she did the right thing. And then generations later, it's not just David, that's amazing, but generations later from her lineage, from her line comes Jesus, from Jesus, Jesus. It's amazing. Blessings follow when you step out in obedience, when you step out and and allow your faith to be active, not dull and not empty and not void, but alive and vibrant and engaged. I pray that we have that faith. Amen. I pray that you have that faith. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.